0: the structure and growth of the Bible, structure and growth of the Bible. Now where does the word Bible come from? Uh, I think you understand that this word Bible is not found within the scriptures themselves. Where in fact then do we get this word Bible from. The word Bible came through um, Latin from the Greek Biblia and it was plural. Originally Greek-speaking Christians called the scriptures the books because of the number of books that make up the scriptures. They called them the books. Ancient books were written on papyrus, or what the Greeks called byblos. And from that word, it was imported from Egypt through a town which came to be called byblos, and um, they began to write upon this uh, the reeds, were the split reeds of a, of, a, of a plant that grows in Egypt, uh, which was made into some kind of parchment type of paper. And uh, as a result... Um, the Greeks used to call any written document or book a Biblion. And from that word, the plural, Biblia, the Bible, the the scriptures, came to receive this title. They were called not the book, but the books. And when uh, the uh, word, the Greek, Word for uh, the Scriptures passed into Latin. It um, it was treated as a singular noun, Biblia, in Latin. Taken straight over from Greek, just simply was put into the treated as a sing in the singular, and came to be called the book. And from that, it passed into English as the Bible, and into many other languages more or less in the same way. That's how we came to have this title, the Bible. The Bible is in fact both one book and at the same time, a library of books, of 66 books in all. For the most part, these 66 are quite distinct, although there, there were some that were bound together originally as one book. For instance, one and two kings was in fact one book originally, and one and two Samuel, the two books of Samuel, were in fact originally one book. Ezra and Nehemiah were one volume originally. It is also possible that one and two chronicles, which were one book originally again, they're just a two-fold work, It is quite possible that Ezra and Nehemiah and the two books of Chronicles were all one volume originally. We know that Ezra and Nehemiah were one, but we're not absolutely certain about uh, Chronicles being added in with them. It's also possible that Judges and Ruth were originally one volume. There's a certain amount of evidence to suggest that Originally, they were one work. And, of course, I think you all know that Luke and Acts were two parts of one work. Originally, when they were first brought out, they were bound together, and they were, in fact, a, two, a, a, history, a history of Christian origins, if you like, in two parts. First, Christ, as it were, and secondly, the church. We've often said that uh, Luke would well have entitled his work The New Man, and and headed the first part, the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the second part, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church. But originally, these were uh, one uh, volume. But nevertheless, for the most part, the 66 books which we now have, which comprise this library that we call the Bible, um, are are distinctive. They cover a period during which they were written of not less than 1,500 years. The New Testament being confined to the last a uh, hundred years approximately of that, peer, of that whole time. The books were written over quite a large area, ranging from Italy in the West and uh, in the east, Mesopotamia and possibly as far east as Persia. Um, there were all the different places that uh, parts of these, of these scriptures were written, having quite a large area. The writers were not only parted by time and parted by locality or place, but they were greatly diverse in their backgrounds. Uh, Here we have writers who were kings, others who were priests, others who were prophets. We have noblemen and courtiers. We have shepherds. We have peasants. We have um, uh, fishermen. We even have um, a fig tree dresser, as a gentleman who went up into the tree before it would ripen, he had to puncture each of the sycamore figs in order to help it uh, to really ripen. One of the uh, uh, one of the writers was such had such as an occupation. Uh, we have statesmen we have soldiers, we have at least one doctor of medicine, Dr. Luke, we have at least one doctor of law, Dr. Paul, we have at least one ex-tax collector, a Matthew. So it's really a most remarkable, remarkably diverse backgrounds uh, of the writers of this book. There are, of course, a number of others that you probably can think of, and I'm just simply Uh, I've noted down those that came to me and then too we find that every kind of literary method is employed in this library of books we have um, uh, everything from biography from personal memoirs and personal diaries uh, there are diaries actually included in scripture from personal correspondence more general correspondence. We have to, uh, not only all that side is, we have poetry, we have parable, we have allegory, and then on to prophecy and clear dogmatic teaching. The whole range of literary method is found in this library. It is truly a library. And yet, with all its diversity, there is a unity from its beginning to its end. True? It's not the apparent technical unity of a machine. It is rather the unity, uh, the, the living unity of a plant or an organism. It's not quite so apparent, and yet it's there. Its unity is expressed in many different ways. Ways, But once you really look into it, you discover there is this amazing unity, which, as it were, gives the whole of this library harmony and cohesion. There is is no human editor, no one human compiler, there is no one human anthologist, there is no editorial committee. And yet somehow, over the centuries of time, it has grown until it has reached what we now know as the Bible. And its unity has sprung from within instead of being applied from without. Thus, in one sense, it is an almost unconscious unity The writers were not conscious of harmonising what they said with those that went before and certainly not with those that were going to come after them. Uh, It was an unconscious unity, they must have known of course, in speaking of certain things that they were holding to what had already been revealed, possibly developing certain thoughts, certain aspects of what God had revealed. Nevertheless, it was an unconscious unity which gradually developed over the centuries until we have what we now call the Bible. It is a wonderful thing, this unity, just because it is so unconscious, for it is hidden in many ways uh, behind a tremendous diversity uh, and variation. Uh, In every way, And, and I do believe that unless our hearts are really enlightened and the Holy Spirit is really leading us, we fail to see that unity and can only be taken up sometimes with the diversity and with the variation of detail. These 66 books are divided into two unequal halves. I hope you'll forgive me for being so utterly simple this evening, but I'm starting absolutely from scratch, just as if no one knew what the Bible was. These 66 books are divided into two unequal halves: 39 books in the first division, which we commonly call the, the Old Testament, and uh, 27 in the second division which is commonly called the New Testament now the first thing I want to do this evening is to look at um, the, the whole matter of the Old and the New Testaments this is the first great division in the structure of the Bible 66 books, that's the first thing a library and yet a unity. That's the first thing. The second thing is divided into two unequal hearts. One section, 39 books, the other section, 27 books. Now we call these the Old and the New Testament. Now the word Testament came to be used of this major twofold division of the Bible due to a mistranslation of a Greek word which meant, firstly, arrangement or disposition or testament or will, in the sense of last testament and will. That's what it firstly meant, and it had a second meaning of covenant or pact. In the Septuagint version, which is the oldest uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek, this Greek word was used to translate the Hebrew word used so much, the Hebrew word covenant, and it was understood clearly by all readers of the Greek version of the Old Testament uh, to mean covenant. It's interesting actually to note that there was another Greek word which could have been translated, uh, could have been used for the Hebrew word, uh, covenant, uh, and could have done the job very well. But the Septuagint translators very It's noteworthy, actually. The Septuagint translators rejected it out of hand because that particular word had the idea within it of a pact or agreement between equals and they had sufficient spiritual understanding of God's word to recognise that the Hebrew word covenant did not mean a pact between two equals. Now this is very, very important. I believe many of us have got the idea that covenant means this kind of mutual pact. In fact, the biblical idea of covenant means God's pact or God's settlement or God's covenant uh, freely made by Him in sovereign grace. That is, it is God who initiates the covenant and it is God who, as it were, gives it freely to us. Uh, That, I think, has to be understood very clearly at the outset. The Septuagint translators felt that the first Greek word we have spoken of was better suited uh, to this biblical Hebrew conception um, of the word covenant than the second. Now, when the Septuagint was translated into Latin, by the way, I've got here, uh, just uh, for anyone who's interested, uh, these two versions, this is the Septuagint version, you can come and look at it afterwards, it differs quite considerably in some ways from our Hebrew version of the Old Testament. And when the Septuagint version was translated from Greek into Latin, and uh, uh, hence we get this Latin Vulgate, which of course originally was the Bible of, uh, of Western Europe, and of course our own English Bible was originally originally stemmed from this Latin Vulgate. Um, this, this translation, when it was made from the Greek into the Latin, two words vied for Uh, the honour of translating this Greek word, which had been used for covenant. I do hope I'm being simple enough for you. Uh, The one word, I have it here, was testamentum, and the second word was instrumentum. And the first word was favoured very greatly by all European scholars, and the second word was favoured very greatly by all the North African scholars. So there was great division of opinion over quite a period of time as to which word should be used, which Latin word should be used, to translate this Greek word that the Septuagint translators had used for the Hebrew word covenant. Now, this first word testamentum meant testament or will, or arrangement, and instrumentum was, interestingly enough, meant a legal binding agreement or document. Um, It's very interesting, actually, in many ways, to follow the whole course of this. I don't think we uh, can... Uh, completely follow it. It would take us far too much time. I think it's far too involved and I don't think I'm capable, really, of explaining it simply enough. But you see, the trouble all stemmed from a misunderstanding by the Latin translators of the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version, a misunderstanding as to this Greek word. Whereas the Greek translators had understood it to mean covenant, the Latin translators took it to mean will or testament or arrangement. And so finally it was the European side that won and testamentum was universally used for the word covenant. And thus it passed into English as the word testament. So we've got our word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It would have been very, very interesting if the word instrumentum had won the day. For then we would have possibly had the old instrument and the new instrument. And in many ways we would have been nearer to the idea um, of the two Uh, this twofold division of the Bible the first instrument God used to bring his people to his salvation and the second instrument that he used this is the history of it This this is the explanation the expression of it contained in these books and it would have been very interesting if in fact that word had won the day it would have got probably nearer to the original idea of a binding agreement Uh, or document, even, uh, which which God had made. Well, it didn't, I'm afraid, and uh, in the end, uh, this word testament, testamentum, came in, and it passed into English as testament. Now, the use of the word testament is in many ways quite misleading. For most people, if they understand it at all, Do not understand it as the books expressing the old covenant and those expressing the new covenant, but rather as a last will and testament. How do you look upon uh, the Old Testament? What have you always done? Or have you you never even bothered yourself as to why the first 39 books of the Bible are called the Old Testament? Ever ever thought to yourself, why word testament? What does it mean? There are very, very few Christians who associate that word testament with covenant. And yet the whole point is, it should have been covenant. And indeed, some of the revised versions have gone back to that now and have have put uh, um, the old covenant and the new covenant. I see in the newest version they've gone back again to the testament because of its usage. It's so widely used now by everyone, um, even if wrongly. I suppose it's hard to overcome. But do you understand, uh, really it's nothing to do with the Lord dying and leaving his last will and testament. It's not that the Lord sort of left this over to us. It's uh, a sort of, when he died, he sort of left this behind. This was his ri- the written record that he left behind. That's how I used to think of it. Um, no, not at all. It is the books which express and contain the history of the Old Covenant and the books which express and contain the history of the New Covenant. It's as simple as that. Now it's important for us to understand this word covenant since it's used to cover the whole Bible. The whole Bible is comprehended by this word covenant, either Old or New. And what really does it mean? It's unfortunate that in our authorized version, the word covenant appears in nearly all instances in the Old Testament as covenant, and nearly all instances in the New Testament as testament. Consequently, in the authorized version, the whole continuity is obscured, so that it's very hard in our old version, our authorised version, to really follow through just what is meant by this word covenant. Now, the revised version, and most of them, all of the modern versions that I can recall, have translated it uniformly as covenant. Now, shall we just take our Bibles and look up a number of these references? Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. The word covenant. Genesis chapter 15 verse 8, But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a she-goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle-dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in two, and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in two. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gogashites, and the Jebusites. And then Exodus 24. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now that, there are many, many other instances of the word covenant, but those are three absolutely fundamental references to this word covenant in the Old Testament. And I think they're sufficient to understand the old covenant that God made with his people uh, before Calvary, before the appearance of Christ. Now I want you to turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 Jeremiah 31 31 now here's the 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 Lord has intimated in a number of places that he's going this other covenant is only a preparatory one now here's the first clear dogmatic reference to a new covenant Behold the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin. No more. What a wonderful reference that is. Uh, and if you, to the new covenant. Now turn over, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. And here we have the new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke, of which Moses really, uh, Moses symbolized in his act when he threw the blood upon the people. For this is my blood of the covenant, said the Lord Jesus, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant, or the new covenant. Now, um, 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. In the same way, said Paul, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. No, that's wrong. 2 Corinthians, that should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Who has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22. This makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. This makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. Now, what is the biblical meaning and sense of this word covenant? It means a solemn pact or agreement or settlement initiated by God in his love and grace and mercy and freely bestowed upon us and given to us, ratified by the shedding of precious blood and the death of an innocent. Now it doesn't matter where you turn in the whole of the Bible, this whole library of 66 books, you will not find that the word covenant alters from that. There was a teaching at one time which tried to make everything, um, everything in the Old Testament uh, sort of truth, you know, righteousness, it was all law, and everything in the New Testament, grace. And whilst it's an aspect of truth, we have to be very careful uh, that we don't take it too far. The word covenant has never altered. It has always been a solemn pact that has been initiated by God with his own people and it has been ratified by the shedding of precious blood and the death of an innocent victim. And you see, the whole thing was but a preparation. It was but a symbol, it was but a type of that which was to come. The eternal covenant is a solemn agreement or settlement, a pact, initiated by God through Christ with us who are redeemed through faith in him and ratified by the shedding of Christ's own precious blood and his death. As an absolutely sinless one on the cross. That's the covenant that you and I have been brought into by God. Oh dear child of God. You haven't entered into it by your will. God has drawn you into it by his will. It's as solemn and as wonderful. It's as marvellous as that. God has drawn us into this tremendous pact with, him, with us, that he has made with us, on the one ground of faith. Well, I say that's simply tremendous. By this covenant, and we sing so often of covenant love, of covenant grace, of covenant mercy, And this word is, of course, the word in the Old Testament which our translators uh, have had the greatest of difficulty in translating sometimes loving kindness. In the authorised version, that beautiful word, mercy. In the revised version, loving kindness. And in the revised standard version, steadfast love. But the idea is covenant faithfulness, covenant love. This is God's kind of love, a special kind of love, covenant love, covenant grace, covenant mercy, includes all these ideas within it. By this covenant, God promises to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to change us, to glorify us, to give us an eternal inheritance, and to share his own life And nature and gifts with us. Now there could be nothing more marvellous than the covenant that God has made. And once you see that, this word testament pales into insignificance. The old covenant and the new. How wonderful it is. 39 books all to do with the old covenant and 27 books all to do with the new covenant. I said, it's tremendous. And this covenant uh, has the sense within it of mutual belonging. Now this is where we, where once we understand it's God who initiates it in sovereign grace, Here's where we get to this other idea of something mutual. God gives himself, and you and I have got to give ourselves. God gives himself through the death of Christ. And you and I have got to give ourselves to God through the death of Christ. In other words, it was Christ who died for us to save us. Now we must die. Christ, we must see that Christ died as us, that we might come into union with God. I'm not going to take that matter any further, but it's mutual belonging. And this is the basis of the covenant. Once God has saved us, he says, I give myself to you, you give yourself to me. I give myself to you unreservedly. I don't want your old nature. I don't want your old life. I don't want your old man. I want that all to go away with Christ into death. But I want you alive in Christ. That's what I want. And that's what it means, mutual belonging. It is in fact a marriage, bond or relationship. The Lord said about the old covenant, though I was their husband. This is the idea behind covenant, that you and I have been wedded to God, to the Lord. And that's why adultery in scripture has such somber and solemn overtones, Because it is a denial and a profaning of this covenant relationship. And then again, it also has the idea, the co- this idea of covenant. We call it covenant, um, covenant, the covenant circle. This is what the old Presbyterians always call it, the covenant circle. You'll still hear it. There's a bit of a revival um, of Presbyterianism at present. And you'll hear it mentioned a number of times, the covenant circle. And it really means incorporation into, the, into God's family <coughs> household. Of course, I'm afraid some people try to apply it to infants and try to somehow or other make baptism speak of this incorporation into the covenant circle. Well, maybe babes of believing parents are, of course, incorporated into the covenant circle, but I don't see why we have to add water to it. However, that's by the way. Um, uh, that's by the way. The, the point is that the covenant, covenant stands for incorporation into God's family and household. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And by that redemption, we have we have been placed in God's family and household. He has made a covenant with us, and we are His own family. I shall be their God; they shall be my children. That's it. We are we are we are, we are a family, and we are His household, built upon the um, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the chief. Cornerstone. Well, now, the, the first 39 books of this library um, are all to do with the Old and Preparatory Covenant, and they illustrate and explain God's ways with his own before the appearance of Christ on the earth and they, they lead up to and point to the new and eternal covenant which are expressed and explained in the last 27 books. Now, I do hope I've made myself clear. Um, really, the first covenants There are a number of covenants, but we will call it the old covenant and cover them all. They are all really for looking forward to the great new and eternal covenant of the Lord. And there's a wonderful chapter in Hebrews which tells us that this new covenant has made the old obsolete. It's it's made them old. It's made them obsolete. It's taken over, it's transcended them, it's surpassed them. They were the shadow, this is the substance. Now of course, having said that, many will surely ask, um, do we really need the old covenant? Do we need the 39 books of the old covenant, now that we have the new? Um, Are they not made obsolete, rendered completely obsolete by the new covenant? We have to remember that the whole Old Testament is a vital preparation and foundation for the New Testament. The Bible of the Lord Jesus and of the Apostles and of the early church was literally, literally and exclusively the Old Testament. The books, the 39 books of the Old Covenant and all that we have in the new flowered and fruited on the bush of the old. Um, I, I think some of you have heard these little old jingles but they're, um, they're helpful. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. You heard that? Or oh, another one, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Aren't you taught these when you were children? The new is in the old enfolded, the old is in the new unfolded. They're very simple little jingles, but still they help, don't they? Um, they make us realize in many ways they get into our hearts and in the end they they often lead us to the truth of the matter it's absolutely truthful. in our studies um, our previous studies uh, in the bible on the bible as a whole uh, in what we call the aim and the scope of the bible we have already pointed out the threefold theme uh, of the scriptures you remember it i believe then we spoke of it as the bringer of salvation, um, the way of salvation, and uh, the saved. I think i might right in saying that. Uh, there are one or two ways I remember. Well now, this evening I want just to use this, uh, these three. I've put it down here to refresh your memory. The mediator of the covenant, the covenant in his blood, and the people of the covenant. Now, I'm not going to um, look up all those scriptures this evening. I've put them there. I'd like you to look at them. But uh, let's just very simply look at this threefold uh, uh, theme which binds the old and the new covenants together. First of all, the mediator of the covenant. Now, it is very interesting that whether it is the old or the new, the, co- the, the mediator of the covenant is the same. Now, if you look at these scriptures, Matthew chapter 1 from 1 to 17, Luke chapter 3, 23 to 38, you'll find they're all genealogies. And uh, you might question, well, well, what's all this huge number of verses, all with those weird sounding names? The son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Why all this? Well, you see, the whole point is this. The books of the of the New Covenant are being related systematically to the books of the Old. So when you come, if you turn to your New Testament or the books of the New Covenant, chapter one of Matthew, verse one, and you are immediately taken right back to Abraham, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. It goes straight back all that way. You see, um, again, if you look at Hebrews chapter 8 and 6 and 1 Timothy 2, 5, it speaks of Christ as the mediator of a new covenant. And the Messiah, the Messiah is the focal point of the old covenant, the Messiah. And the Saviour is the focal point of the new And the Messiah Saviour, or the Saviour Messiah, is the focal point of the whole Bible. It's so simple. If you use use another word, and instead of Messiah, the Hebrew Messiah, you use the Greek Christ, then you've got it. Christ, the Christ, is the focal point of the Old Covenant. The Saviour of the world is the focal point of the New. And the Saviour Christ is the focal point of the whole Bible. Now, it doesn't matter where you turn. It's the same It's the heart of the whole thing. He binds the two covenants together. You don't honestly believe, do you, that it was the blood of lambs and bulls and goats that saved the people in the old covenant? Not at all. That high priest going into the presence of God once a year couldn't actually bring God near to the people or the people to him. It was because he represented Christ. That's the whole point. And um, when you think of it, remember how the Lord Jesus in Luke, chapter uh, 24, verse 27, verse 44 and 45, how he spoke of himself in all the scriptures. It says, Then opened he their understanding of the scriptures, that they might understand him in all three great sections of the Old Covenant, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. Very wonderful. And um, you remember how he spoke to them on the road to Emmaus and he told them of all things concerning himself uh, that were written in the scriptures? Well, it's all there, you see. The whole Old Testament speaks of Christ, All, all the books of the Old Covenant. And have you ever thought how immeasurably poorer we would be if we hadn't got the books of the Old Covenant? If we hadn't got the messianic prophecies in the books of the Old Covenant. For instance, supposing we never had that prophecy about the seed of the woman crushing the the serpent's head and the serpent bruising or crushing um, the saviour's heel. I mean, we we would uh, we would be much the poorer. Supposing we didn't have Isaiah 53. Supposing we didn't have Psalm 22, supposing we didn't have those prophecies in Zechariah, those prophecies in Micah, we would be much the poorer for it. Isn't it a great encouragement to our faith that we have here in the books of the Old Covenant detailed predictions of becoming Christ? And we know they've been fulfilled. I say we would be immeasurably poorer. We wouldn't be without our salvation, but we would be immeasurably poorer. Then again, supposing we didn't have the prophecies of the coming glory and kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Take Isaiah. Some of us live in Isaiah. Oh, we think the coming glory and the coming kingdom. You won't find any of that in the New Testament, will you? The Lord's left it to the old the prophets of the old testament to tell us about the coming glories. We've got little touches of it in Romans chapter 8 and 1 Thessalonians and a few other places. We've got some real touches in Revelation of the glory which is to come. But it's in, it's in the, the prophetical books of the Old Covenant that we've really got a, an explanation, a, a, a definition of the coming glory and kingdom of our Lord Jesus. I say we would be so much poorer. Think of Ezekiel. Think of, um, as I said, of Isaiah. Think of Micah or Zephaniah. These wonderful prophecies of the coming glory of the Lord Jesus. And then again, think of 1 Chronicles chapter, from chapter 1 to chapter 9. The whole first nine chapters of the first book of Chronicles taken up with genealogies. And they're so dry. And they're so dusty. And you might well ask yourself, what on earth are they doing in Scripture? But you see, the whole point is this, on their own they mean nothing. But when you set them in with the whole Bible, the the books of the New Covenant, they mean something, for they are the systematic authentication of the coming Christ. Now it doesn't mean a lot to you, and it may not mean a lot to me, but it meant a tremendous amount to the Jews. Uh, in the in the days of the early church, you see they were prejudiced against Christ. A crucified Messiah? There's a contradiction in them. But you see, the Bible, the writings of the apostles gave so much place to these genealogies where they fully authenticated the line of Christ and showed. And he not only came from Abraham, and beyond Abraham, of course, to Adam, but they showed that he was of the royal house of David. They showed that he was born in Bethlehem. You see, they were careful to authenticate the claims of of the Lord Jesus to be the Christ. Now that's why you've got genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 to 9. For you can compare them. And whilst you may have some difficulties, and you will have some difficulties, um, nevertheless, the general outline remains, and you and they, as it were, th- there's something that fully authenticates the claims of the Lord Jesus. Well, we can say a good deal more about uh, Lord Jesus as mediator of the covenant in the, old, in the Old Testament, as we call it, and in the New. I'll ask you just one more question. Do you think we would ever really understand, understand either as modern Jews or as modern Gentiles, what the priesthood of Christ means if we haven't got the 39 books of the old covenant? What do you think it would mean to you? What would it mean to? mean a lot. I can tell you. What what would he mean? Priest, priest, what's a priest? What does he do? Muslim priest, Buddhist priest, Hindu priest, Roman Catholic priest? What kind of priest is Christ? But we've got the 39 books of the old covenant and there we can discover the glories of his priesthood. There we can we can discover the absolute security that we have Mm -hmm. as it were rooted within the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to have someone who appears before God's face for us. Well, i leave that with you. And then again there is this second strand, the covenant in his blood. Covenant in his blood. Again, if you look at these verses, Revelation chapter 5, 6, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, John 1, 29, and you've heard it so many times, Behold the Lamb of God, who beareth the way, the sins of the world. But I want to ask you this evening, tell me, what do you think those hearers of John the Baptist thought when suddenly he took a term which to them all meant something in their very history? It wouldn't have meant anything to Gentiles. But John the Baptist said to those Jewish people, Behold the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. You see, it meant something. What would it mean to us if we hadn't got the books of the Old Covenant? And what do you think the Lord Jesus meant at, at the Passover, at the Passover, when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood? You see, it had behind it the ancient centuries-old tradition of the Passover. There it was on the table, the lamb. There was the bread. It's all there. Some authorities believe, in fact, that the lamb was absent on that last great Passover of the Lord Jesus. With even greater symbolism and meaning, he himself was the lamb. Take, he said, this cup, drink all of it. This is the blood of the new covenant. Well, I say, I think it's tremendous when you understand that. uh, The covenant in his blood. The lamb slain, precious blood shed, the death of an innocent victim underlies the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and it binds the two great divisions of the Bible into one. I think it's tremendous. Well, I would like to ask a few questions very quickly. How could we understand so much of atonement if we hadn't got the books of the Old Testament of the Old Covenant? And how would you and I understand the fullness of what Christ has done in his offering of himself if we didn't have Leviticus, the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Where are these in the New Testament? We've got them in the Old Covenant. And there we understand something of the fullness of what Christ did for us on the cross. All there. Again, what would we understand by this word covenant if we hadn't got the books of the Old Covenant? What would we understand by it? Oh, uh, and what about the blood of Christ? For cleansing, for covering, for making us nigh. Supposing we hadn't really got the books of the Old Covenant, we didn't know that everything in the temple was sprinkled blood. We didn't know how a leper could be cleansed in the temple. If we didn't know what, the, what was done with the blood on the Passover day and so on and so forth how much poorer they would be. You see I'm saying all this just that you might understand that the old, the books of the old covenant are essential books of the new. And I'm taking time over it, not because I think there is anyone here who doesn't think they are central, but simply because you ought to know the ground, the foundation for our, our belief that they are central. And then there is this third strand, the people of the covenant. The people of the covenant. Hebrews 11, and especially verse 39 and 40, it says, and, and these, uh, though, they was, uh, though they had this faith, did not receive the promise because God was, wanted them to wait for us. Well, let's just see what it does there. Uh, All these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had foreseen something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now, that's tremendous, really, because it's continuity. It's continuity. Those saints under the old covenant are absolutely with us. It's wonderful, simply wonderful. And uh, there's a continuity here. Um, They they weren't allowed to receive the promise fully because God wanted them to become perfect by our being included. Well, that's very, very wonderful. And you see, again in Acts chapter seven and verse 38, Stephen, in his great message to the Sanhedrin, speaks of the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness and um, unfortunately again our authorised version has translated the Hebrew uh, word for church really Uh, the word the Greek translators used they used the word ecclesia which we know as church for they translated it as congregation and when they came to the New Testament they translated uh, this word as church So we have no continuity in our authorised version. We have in the Old Testament the congregation of the people of Israel, or the children of Israel. And in the New Testament we have the church. But you see, readers of the Greek Old Testament, and most of the early church were uh, Greek-speaking. They were Greek readers. They saw immediately the continuity. For when they opened the pages of the Old Covenant in Greek, they found Ecclesia. They found it everywhere, everywhere they found it. Right back in the days of Moses, they found the Ecclesia in the wilderness. And then on the way, all the way through, they found it. And then when the Lord Jesus said, I will build my Ecclesia upon this rock, they understood it. I see, they understood. And when Paul began to talk about this Ecclesia, they understood. So you see, it's all very wonderful when you begin to see it like that. Hebrews 11, verse 10, it says that Abraham sought the city which hath the foundations. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22 and 24, it says, Ye are come unto Mount Zion, to the new Jerusalem, and so on. You see, Abraham sought it, and we've come to it. It's wonderful. If you go to Revelation chapter 21 and verse verse 12 and verse 14, we are told that in one part of the the walls, we have the 12 names of the tribes of Israel, and then we're told that in another place we have the 12 names of the apostles. What does it mean? It means the elect of the Jews and the elect of the Gentiles in one place. It's an amazing thing. No more Jew. No more Gentile. One new man. Now it is this people of the covenant that is so marvellous. The early cho- church saw that it was one company of the redeemed, whether under the old covenant or under the new covenant. Well, we could go on and we could go on about that. When I take Galatians, I put it there for you to look up. Chapter 3, verse 7. You are all sons of Abraham by faith. And then, a little later on, chapter 6, verse 16. And, and Paul prays for that this blessing may be upon uh, the Israel of God. Well, now, all that's very wonderful. And here we've got this three-fold strand in Scripture. Without the Old Covenant, we are in grave danger of misunderstanding many things in the new, or at least not having a balanced understanding of things in the new. Nearly every major biblical idea or conception finds its origin in the Old Covenant. That's a very very big statement to make but it is absolutely true. We also need the, old, the books of the Old Covenant in other ways. For example, take the book of Revelation. When I think without being unkind of some of the nonsense that's been written uh, on the book of Revelation, some of the wild things that have been done on supposed revelations from the book of Revelation. Um, One can only re-emphasize this more strongly than ever. The book of Revelation can never be understood without an understanding of some of the books at least of the old covenant. You take for instance this idea in the the book of Revelation of Babylon. Babylon. in John's day Babylon ceased to exist. What's he talking about? What does he mean by Babylon? He calls this great mother of harlots. Well, where's Babylon? He, he tells us this great city where all the great merchants of the world come, all the merchandises, where all the commerce is, is as it were, centred, this great thing called Babylon how can you understand it really understand it there have been some wild wild identifications uh, of Babylon with various things but you go right back into the old covenant and right back in Genesis and you will find that Nimrod founded Babylon and you'll find there was a tower called Babel and it's connected with Babylon And as you go on through scripture, step by step, there's a development of something and you begin to understand what Babylon is, you find that it's the seat of world government, of world power, you find all kinds of things and gradually as you go through, you discover that Babylon is not just a place in scriptural language, it is a symbol and it has become the symbol of the whole world in all its genius. In all its nobility, in all its cruelty, in all its evil. The mammon of unrighteousness. There. And uh, you take uh, the book of Revelation and you suddenly discover that this Babylon, uh, in, in the end, is in final and terrible collision with another city. And this city is Jerusalem. Oh, just wait. Just wait. Jerusalem was destroyed it ceased to be the city of God it's true that it's still uh, sort of lingering on but uh, what's happened to Jerusalem you go right back, you need all the Old Testament again you go right back through those books and you begin to trace the whole history of Zion you go right back to Abraham when he offered on Mount Moriah his only son Isaac and we discover that that in the end was the, the place of the temple. Amazingly. But you go on and you go on and you go, go on. And gradually you discover how the, the city of the Jebusites became Jerusalem. And so on and so on, and so on. until it becomes not a, uh, an earthly city anymore. It is Jerusalem which is about the mother of us all. And I could go on and on about Revelation because in many ways it's a a wonderful example of what I'm trying to say. How can you understand the book of Revelation without Ezekiel? How can you understand the book of Revelation without Daniel? Take those visions in Daniel. There's a, a lion and there's a bear and there's a leopard and then there's an exceedingly ferocious creature which isn't, we're not told what it is, it's so diverse and so terrible. Come to the book of Revelation, and we discover that all four are rolled into one. Now, is that coincidence? How can you understand that? When I think of the things that even in my short lifetime, I have heard about some of these things how one was Hitler and the other was Stalin and and before that it was Mussolini and the fact that Mussolini was going to erect a great statue outside Rome, Rome and all the rest of it. It all seemed so fitting. You see, the whole point is that you've got to go back into the Old Testament to really discover something of the origin of these symbols and figures. And then you begin to understand their development in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Till you come to Revelation, which is the kind of climax of it all. Take the cherubim. I think it's an amazing fact that John didn't call them cherubim. He called them living creatures. Someone said to me once, they, they thought that, um, that John had deliberately concluded the scripture and that he sat down and wrote his book as a final sort of chapter to the Bible. Well, I think he did it rather badly in one or two ways if he did do that. For one thing, I can't think why he didn't call them cherubim. And he, he, in his vision he saw these living creatures, or living ones, as he calls them. They've got eyes all round, and uh, all over, they're continually moving. And when you begin to look into them, you suddenly get a shock. Where you think, I've read about these somewhere else. Where have I read about these before? You turn back and you discover, to your amazement, that in Ezekiel, you've got a description. A much more detailed description of them, in fact. And there, they're called cherubim. Well, you see, that gives you an understanding, doesn't it? You, you've, you've got your, your, you get some understanding, it saves you, from a misinterpretation of Scripture. And Zechariah and his visions. Well, I can't go on, but I mean Malachi and his. And, and you remember what we talked about, John the Baptist, and, and the witness, and the, the olive trees in Zechariah. Well, uh, how are we going to understand that chapter in Revelation? Because somewhere or other there is a strange link with Zechariah and Malachi. So you see, we, if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, which after all is the consummation of the whole of the Bible in God's hands, it is in fact that, although I do not believe that John meant it to be wholly that, um, we've got to go back to the books of the Old Covenant and understand these things. We've got to find out what they mean and then trace their course through until we come to the end. I say, without the uh, the books of the old covenant, the symbols, the figures, and types used in the new have little meaning or are open to misinterpretation. No, I think we will end. Now, I think we'll end there this evening. But uh, let's. Let it suffice if we say that here we have 66 books and they are 66 parts of one organic unity. It's as if you could say with, my, with the body, cut off the hand, yes, you can do without one hand. You can do without one leg. But if you want fullness of life, you need that leg. You need that hand. And so it is with these books of the Bible. They are all part of a fullness, of of a living, organic unity. Every part is vital. Every part has a function to perform in the full revelation of God's heart and mind and we have this great major division into two but we must not think that the books of the old covenant are inferior to the books of the new it is a subtle and insidious mistake to make they are as inspired and as a authority as the books of the New. They're necessary one to the other. Well I hope the Lord will have helped us this evening in a little of our understanding of the structure (coughs) and growth of the Bible.